I want to turn over to the book of Jude. This will be our last study in this little book. So it's suite number 14. And we're looking at the last two verses of Jude. We've hopefully learned a lot as we've gone through this little epistle together. And remember, uh, Jude wasn't one of the twelve, but in fact he was a child of Joseph and Mary. He was therefore the half-brother of Jesus himself. But Jude was used by God. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit, clearly, to write this important uh, epistle. And, uh, and it's really the conclusion of this letter. And it's really the high point of the whole letter, if you stop and read through the whole thing quickly and get to the end. just You hear this a lot in services, at the end of the service, kind of a doxology. And we've been looking at these three points on how to live <coughs> victoriously in times of apostasy. How to live victoriously in times of apostasy. And we've seen the last couple of weeks, the first of all, we said we needed to base our understanding on what the apostles taught. And we saw that in verses 17 to 19, and how important it was what they taught and uh, also the instruction they gave us about false uh, teachers. And then secondly, we said that we had to build your life or our life on God's principles, and we saw that in verses 20 to 23, and we talked about that it's, it's conforming What's that look like? It looks like conforming to the, the teaching of God's Word. It's a life that's controlled by the Spirit. It's committed to God. It's uh, in, in Himself in everything. It's also confident about the return of Christ. And then lastly, we said it's concerned about others. And so tonight we come to the third B here in our list. It's believing what God can do. Believing what God can do. And... I don't know about you, but whenever I think about Scripture in the ability of God to do incredible things through sometimes uh, little means, I think of little David and Goliath. I mean, you think of that picture, you know, you see images of it online. You know, you have this little boy basically with a slingshot, and he got this giant armored uh, warrior standing before him. And yet, uh, just with five little stones in his slingshot, down came this giant Goliath. I mean, it's an incredible picture of really having belief in your heart that God can do incredible things, even though you may not feel competent in and of yourself. Uh, and so when we come to this, these couple verses here, before we read them, I think we have to think about this. He's really closing this epistle, and he wants to leave in his reader's mind something very, uh, not profound, but something very important. And it relates to, really, our salvation. And if I ask you this question, and don't answer, you can just answer in your own mind, what's the most important doctrine that you know of as it relates to our salvation? Of all the different doctrines that you talk about when you talk about the salvation experience, um, you know, you, you, can, you can talk about justification, you can talk about regeneration, you can talk about conversion, you can talk about adoption, all those things. But I would have to say the most important doctrine of all when it comes to our salvation is eternal security. Or <clears throat> as we call it, the perseverance of the saints. It has to stand far above all the others, or really it's a foundation upon, you could say, which the other ones are built. If, if you're not going to believe in the perseverance of the saints, if you're not going to believe in eternal security, basically it washes out all the other ones. Uh, and so it's really the most marvelous doctrine of them all. All the, the justification, regeneration, conversion, all those things you can't fully appreciate what those doctrines are unless you believe that salvation is forever. Just washes it out. Without the assurance and the confidence of eternal security, our, our Christian walks, our Christian lives, 
would give way to doubt. They would give way to worry. They'd give way to fear because believers couldn't be sure uh, if their salvation wasn't eternal, are these other doctrines permanent as well? Are they eternal? And so when it comes to certain commands, when it comes to salvation, Christ saying basically you have to give up everything to follow me. That's what his command was. Um, I don't know about you, but if I didn't know my security, my, my salvation was secure in Christ and that it was eternal, I don't know if I would give up everything to follow Christ, frankly. <laughs> I don't think it would be worth the gamble because I know myself. If I had to keep myself saved... I don't think I'd be saved today, okay? Um, and it would hardly seem worth the cost if in the end, just by one little mistake, you could lose everything. It just wouldn't be worth it. But because of the doctrine of eternal security, I think we can rest our heads on our pillows at night. We can rest assured that nothing can rob us of our saving faith in Christ and that ultimately it will produce, as 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says this, for this light momentary affliction that we're going through is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If that wasn't a sure thing, how many of you would follow Christ? If somehow it was left up to you, if it were up to us to maintain our salvation, we would surely lose it to a one and so you know as we struggle in this world of sin and we we constantly deal with it every day we're sinners saved by grace and we constantly would be repeatedly forfeiting our salvation if it if it depended on us living a perfect life without sin I mean, even the Apostle Paul in Romans 7.24 acknowledged that, right? Remember, he says, he had this continuing battle with sin going on, and he says, wretched man that I am. This is the Apostle Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Okay? And he also goes on and he says, you know, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things I shouldn't do, I do. You know, he's got that turmoil going on. Uh, he recognized, really, that he could neither gain nor maintain salvation through his own self-righteous efforts. Um, and thankfully, our true salvation is not based on our works as believers, but it's rather based on what? The work of Christ, right? That's what this week is all about, as Rudy was saying. Uh, it's his righteousness that covers those who put their faith or trust in him. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 to 11, Paul says this, Indeed, I count everything else as loss. Why? Why would it be worth? And he had a lot. He was a Pharisee. He was very knowledgeable, a lot of education, a lot of status in community. He says, I count it all as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or dung, really is the word, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And then he says this, having, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. What Paul was saying is, it, 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 it's not up to him. When you put your faith, your trust in Christ, he saves you. And he saves you for eternity. For eternity. We need not keep on worrying about losing our salvation. And we've read, as we've gone through this book, many people who have turned from the faith. They became apostate. They turned against Christ. Our, our salvation is, is based upon the unchanging person of Jesus Christ. We have the plan of salvation. We have the promise of salvation. We have the power of God through salvation and his provision. And it's all from God himself. And he guarantees our eternal destiny. 
And so this doctrine, the, the, the perseverance of the saints, I like to call it that. Some people say, oh, that means, you know, once saved, always saved. I don't like that. It's almost like, well, I'm saved now. I can go do whatever I want, right? Because <laughs> I'm saved. All my sins are forgiven, so I can go live however I want. It doesn't matter. No, no, it's, it's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. You're going to persevere in striving to do what God wants you to do throughout your life. And that's true of the believers. Um, they, they persevere in faith in the gospel to the end. Why? Because the Father has granted them an unfailing faith. And it connects to all those other doctrines of salvation that I mentioned. It's intimately tied to the doctrine of election. Because God makes sure those who he chooses for eternal life will never lose it. It's linked to the doctrine of justification, when you think about it. That's where Jesus Christ has fully paid sin's penalty for believers, so that there's no basis on which they can be condemned. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ, the Bible says. It's connected inseparably to the, the doctrine of sanctification, becoming more like Christ each day. The Bible says the Holy Spirit seals believers, it sanctifies believers, and therefore it certifies that all believers will be brought to glory. And so if we, who by faith embrace the gospel, could lose our salvation, all those doctrines would be undermined. They wouldn't mean anything, really. And so as he brings this letter, this epistle, to a close, Jude really underscores God's ability to persevere in the work of salvation and allow us, therefore, to persevere in the work of salvation. And he does so in a, in a means of a, of a doxology, you could say, a word of praise. And so look at what he writes here in verses 24 to 25. Just two quick verses. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God and our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts this morning to your word, or this evening to your word. Lord, that you would really show us what you can do in and through us as we are willing participants with you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 24, believing what God can do. Uh, first point here is that we have to rely on his ability and not our own, not yourself. You rely on God's ability. It's kind of like a you picture yourself as this little helpless sheep on the shoulders of a, of a, of a shepherd. A sheep has wandered off, and the shepherd finds it, and he puts it on his shoulders, and he's carrying it back to the flock. The, the sheep's pretty much helpless. See, we, we're relying totally on God's ability to do what he desires through us. The moment we begin to trust in our own ability, that's where we have issues <laughs> in general. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I don't think you would argue with the fact that God is powerful, right? God is very powerful. Uh, you know in your heart, you've probably seen in your life, God do incredibly powerful things at times. And according to God's word, really what we're seeing here tonight to avoid this spiritual disaster, to live victoriously in times of apostasy, apostasy we really ought to believe what he can do you have to really believe it because when you believe it you can trust him right you have to rely on his ability look at what it says here now to him who is able to who to god it's god who's able um, this word able is is really the idea of Power, dynamite, exactly. Um, that's where we get our word from. God is able. And to show you how able he is, I just want you to turn to a couple scriptures with me. The first one's over in Ephesians chapter 3. 
Ephesians chapter 3, because sometimes we forget how able God is. You know, we, we tend to get stuck in our circumstances. We tend to get stuck in all the trials and tribulations, and we forget that we have a God who's completely able to deal with this stuff. And he will do so according to his time plan and his will. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. He uses the same language. Um, this is what Rudy was just referring to before we started teaching. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think. This, this has the idea of superabundance. Not just a little abundance. This is talking about like a fire hose abundance. I mean, it's just overkill to the max. And he says, even more than we can ask or think, according to the power at work, look at where it's at, within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. See, because God is perfectly faithful, he's supreme, he's powerful, he's infinitely loving, you could say. Um, He won't allow his children to fall away from saving faith or even to defect from the gospel so as to be lost in their sins again. He won't allow it. He'll take you home before that will happen. I mean, that's how serious this is. In Hebrews chapter 7, turn over there. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, another he is able passage. Hebrews chapter 7, look at verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Listen to this language, to the uttermost. He's not just able to save, but he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, through Christ. Since he always lives... Even though he died, he still lives, as we sang. He always lives to make intercession for them. See, he's willing to run interference. Because God is able to save to the uttermost. There's nothing that can break your security in Christ. You have to believe that. When you believe that fact... It's, it's almost like the enemy can come at you with all he's got. It, it doesn't really matter. Because you know in the end, you're on the winning team. So not, is he, not only is he willing and able to preserve believers, look at what he says in, in Romans 8.28. He says, we know that for those who love God, we know this verse, all things work together, what? For good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God works all things together for good for those that love him. That commit their lives to him. It doesn't say that all things are good. (laughs) Right? It says that he works all things, which includes bad things, together for good. He's also able to preserve them to the end. Look at the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John chapter 6. And then we'll get back to Jude. John chapter 6. Look at verse 37. John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. We call that, what? Irresistible grace. Irresistible. If God has elected you before the foundation of the world, there is no way that you're going to be able to resist the calling of God eventually. (laughs) And he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What does that mean? It means just what it says. I will never cast out. Never. Why? Because the Father has given us to the Son. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing 
of all that, has, that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For since this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have, what? Eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. We're going to talk about this on Friday. The idea, even with Moses and the serpents in the wilderness, remember they put the serpent on the stick. I didn't get to it in my message on Sunday, but we're going to mention it on Friday. And they had to what? They had to look to the serpent to be saved from the, the poison. And so when you, when you stop and you think about this, some people may read verse 39 and say, well, wait a minute, what about Judas? What about Jesus? Judas? Well, <laughs> obviously he did not look to the Son. He did not believe in the Son. He was an imposter. He was not clearly one of the elect. You could say it that way. And so he would never really was his, you could say. Clearly by his actions. And some of us believe, well, you know, I, I believe that, but, you know, I still got to do what I can. I still got to try. I still got to, you know, um, if I get myself into trouble, then I'll go to God and ask for help. That's how we live our lives. And God says, no, don't do that. Do not do that. Why? Because he is able. He is able. To him who is able. And notice the ability of God here twofold, first of all, to keep you from stumbling, to keep us from stumbling. We continue as readers, we, we kind of see through the book of Jude here, these waves of, of stumbling uh, people. <laughs> and Jude's constantly kind of letting out the judgment of God on these people. And it's kind of frightening when you read about this. Wow, these people, remember, where they were in the church. These were not people in the world. These were people in the church, the building of the church, not the universal church, clearly. They, so it's kind of crazy. Some of them probably were saved and they repented, but most of them probably weren't, these apostate teachers. It seems to happy, happen to a lot of them here. And so you could, you could sit here and you could wonder as we went through this book, well, could that happen to me, Right? I mean, could I stumble? Could I, could I go down this road as some of these, these people that, that Jude is writing about? Am I really in Christ? Have I really trusted him? Is my faith real? Do I see Christ truly working in and through me? Um, because to be honest with you, only a fool, only a fool would, would say something like, oh, I have no chance of falling. <laughs> I would never do what these people did in here, in this epistle. No, I'm, I'm a believer, and I'll always be a believer. I, I would never fall away. I'm reminded of a story of a once famous circus acrobat. Felipe Pettit was his name, and he was rehearsing at the, the Bayfront Auditorium in St. Petersburg, Florida. And as he was rehearsing, he fell from his wire about 30 feet to a concrete floor. And according to witnesses who witnessed this, he rolled over on his stomach and he began to pound the floor with his fists and he cried out, I can't believe it, I can't believe it, I don't ever fall. <laughs> but he fell. Don't ever, ever think that you are not able to fall. Except by the grace of God, right? There go I. See, sometimes we, we get a little judgmental in our piousness and we, oh, I don't know how that person could do such a thing. Be careful. Be careful. Because mature Christians think differently about that because as a mature Christian, we know ourselves too well. We know our capable. We know that we are capable of falling. We are capable of failing the Lord in our lives. And so it brings new life to these words in my mind. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling or stumbling. That gives me fresh hope. Because I'm not relying anymore on my ability 
I'm definitely going to stumble. I'm definitely going to fail at some point or another. But I thank God that he is able to keep me from stumbling. It strengthens us really in our, in our resolve, you could say, to remain in Christ. This word to keep. Now to him who is able to what? To keep, he says. Philoso in the original, it means to guard, to watch over. It's actually a, a military word. They used it of, of military individuals who would have to guard someone or a prisoner or something like that. And, and here, it's an interesting point in light of what Jude says that so many Christians are stumbling. This is all he's talked about, this whole book, basically. And specifically here in the book of Jude, <clears throat> it seems that a lot of them had fallen into sexual immorality. It has an emphasis on that with the love feasts and all that stuff. I think those things got out of hand. And so he's saying God is the only one able to keep you from that. He's the only one. You can't keep yourself from that. And the obvious question is why? Why would you say such a thing? Well, look at what the Lord says over in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. Matthew 15, verse 19. He says, for out of the heart <laughs> come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, there it is, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Why can't we keep ourselves from that? Because it's in our hearts, if we're very honest with ourselves. God is the only one who can keep us from stumbling. And the particular stumbling here in the context of Jude is getting involved in something like sexual immorality or adultery or murder or any of those things. God is at his post. He's guarding us. He's standing guard over believers to ensure that we are safe, that we are prevented from going down that path. See, we don't depend on our own selves. Psalm 12, 7 says, You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. Isn't that an incredible promise? You, O oh Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. If you ever needed protection from a generation and society, it's today, right? Well, you know what? God is protecting us. Or in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 26, Proverbs 3, 26, it says, For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Why? Caught from what? From all the snares of the enemy. All the snares of the devil out there every day. Whether it's driving down the freeway, whether it's going to the supermarket, whatever. He's, he's laying out snares. Right? And the Lord will be our confidence. Not ourselves. Or when he wrote, remember when we went through the study of 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 in verses uh, 7 to 9. Paul pointed out to them, he says, so that you are not lacking in any gift. They had every gift possible. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8, he says, who will sustain you, listen, to the end. And the, the book of in the, the church at Corinth had a lot of issues, and we've gone through those. But he says, you know what, for those of you who are truly in Christ, the Lord will sustain you to the end, listen, guiltless <clears throat> in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be guiltless even though we're guilty. We're guiltless. Why? Verse 9 says, God is faithful. I mean, we sing that, right? Great is thy faithfulness. We sing that song. But I don't think we realize how faithful God is. God is faithful even when we fail. God is faithful when we're faithless. God continues to be faithful to those who love him, to those who have responded affirmatively to the gospel. And that's what he says. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's going to be faithful during any assault from the enemy. It doesn't matter how bad it is. That's a wonderful promise for us. In 1 John 5.18, John says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Does not keep on sinning. It's the idea of not perfection, but it has the idea of lifestyle. It has the idea of a complete change of lifestyle. 
probably most of us, before we were in Christ, we sinned and we didn't even know we were sinning. You know what I'm saying? I mean, our, our lives were steeped in sin. Um, some of us more than others. But once we were born of God, once we were born again, once we became a new creature in Christ, what happened? God kind of diverted our desires. All of a sudden, all the things that we ran to before, sinful behaviors, there was kind of a distaste in our mouth for those things. Maybe there was still a desire, okay? I mean, sinful things are desirous. Don't, don't believe the lie that they're not. I mean, you know, the, the enemy makes sure that they look good. <laughs> but it's, it's important for us to know that if we know Christ, we have been born of God, we do not keep on sinning as a way of life without any conviction. But he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. Wow. You hear a lot of people even in the word of faith movement saying, oh, you know, we got to, you know, that's demon of this or demon of that. Or, hey, I'm a child of God. I don't have to worry about demons. I really don't. And not that you would never have an encounter with one. I'm not saying that. But I think God would be fully capable of giving you the wisdom to deal with anything demonic in your life if you came across it. I don't think we need to go, go around chasing demons. Matter of fact, I think we're told to kind of run the other way. Stay away from that kind of stuff. Okay? Um, but he says here, the evil one does not touch him. Um, he is the one who keeps us from stumbling down that road into apostasy. It's only God who does that. Um, in, in John chapter 10, verse 27 to 29, Jesus, the good shepherd, <laughs> told his, his listeners, he said this, my sheep, what, hear my voice, and I know them, and they, what, follow me. And then listen, he says, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. They will never perish. And no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. Right? And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I always remember David Hawking saying, you know what, you know how big the hand of God is? You may be able to jump from knuckle to knuckle, but you're not going to be able to get out of his hand. Okay? That is so true. I mean, he holds everything within his hands. And the Apostle Paul emphasized continuously that salvation is based solely on God's grace through Christ's death. That's how we're saved. It's not based on our human works. It's not based on our church attendance. It's not based on whether we we're baptized or not. It's not based on whether we take communion. It's not based on whether we help the poor or feed the hungry. But rather, it's, it's based on God's working alone, period, in Christ alone. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes this in verse 11. He says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, we were still in our sin, what happened? Christ died for us. I mean, th think about it. You know, that's an incredible thing to give your life up for people who are still caught up in behavior that offends you. You know, it, it would be like promising your grandchild, hey, you know, I'm going to buy you a new car. And they just go off the rails. Like they're into drugs, they're, they're, they're sleeping around, they're doing all sorts of horrible stuff. And you just say, well, you know, I'm just going to do it anyway. <laughs> I'm gonna, we would say as parents, that's nuts. You would never do that, right? But God basically did that in a way. He showed us his love even though we were still sinners. We didn't have to get cleaned up. We couldn't clean ourselves up enough. We were still sinners and that's when Christ died for us. Why? Because that's our greatest need. Our greatest need as a sinner is what? Salvation. Forgiveness. In verse 9, he says, since therefore we have now been justified by his 
blood, we have been made righteous, we've been declared righteous, not by our own blood. It wouldn't have mattered if we died on a million crosses, a million times. We're, we're, we're imperfect sacrifices. God demanded a perfect sacrifice. That's why his son came to earth. That's why his son lived 30-some years without sin and went willingly to a cross and gave up his life. We've been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, listen, much more, now that we are reconciled, we are his, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice, he says in verse 11, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation is kind of being brought back to the proper relationship with someone. When you reconcile with someone, you, you, you deal with any wrongdoing or whatever, and you, you deal with it. There's forgiveness, there's confession, and, and all of a sudden you have a relationship. You're, you're back together. You're reconciled. Well, God reconciled us with himself through the death of his son. Who are we to think that we can somehow break that reconciliation? That's the point. If you could lose your salvation, the death of Christ meant nothing. Think about it. Ephesians 2 tells us before we were saved, we were, we were looked at as what? Enemies of God, right? We were God's enemies. That's when Christ died for us. We were his enemies. There was nothing good in us, Romans 3 tells us. There was nothing in us that made us worthy of his love. It tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all miss the mark. And so it's only by his infinite grace, really, and according to God's perfect plan of salvation, that this salvation was ever even offered to us. And this is what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 makes very clear. It, it kind of reiterates that reality that this is about grace. This is not our human work. He says, for by grace, what? You have been saved. You have been saved. A past event that has ongoing consequences right up through eternity. You have been saved. How? Through faith. Through faith. I don't think any of us here have seen Jesus Christ. I don't think any of us here was at the cross and saw him die. None of us was at the empty tomb and saw that he rose from the, the, the dead. It's interesting that the Bible says nothing about what actually happened when Christ rose from the dead. It tells us all the things around it, right? The people coming to the grave. But we don't have a picture of how did this happen? Like, did he pop up? Did he get up? How, what, what happened? We have nothing. It's silent, completely silent. It tells us before, it tells us after. But it gives us no picture what actually happened, how he got out of that tomb. Yeah, obviously, there was an earthquake, there's angels, all this stuff going on, but there's nothing specific in Scripture that says, and then Jesus did this, and then he walked out of the tomb. It doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us what he's wearing. It doesn't tell us anything. See, salvation is truly a free gift from God. It's a gracious gift. It could not possibly be earned by human works or self-righteousness. Look at, at Titus, Titus chapter 3. And this is just a section that speaks of this. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. You can follow along. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Verse 3, for we ourselves, what? We're once foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, Titus says. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's a pretty dire situation. Verse 4, there it is. 
But, but, when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. End of story. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. We didn't do anything to be saved. But according to his own, it says, mercy. By the washing of regeneration. By the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Why? So that being justified by his grace... Look at, we might become heirs according to the hope of what? Of eternal life. Of eternal life. Not temporary life. Not until you mess up life. Not until you sin life. No, it's eternal life. He gave it to us. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to what? To devote themselves to good works. Not because you're working for your salvation, but you're working out your salvation. These things are profitable. These things are excellent for people. He says in verse 9, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. Wow. We can't keep it by human effort because we didn't gain it by human effort. The eternal security of our salvation rests upon the same infinite sacrifice that brought us our salvation. What's that? The death of Jesus Christ when he secured our salvation. We didn't do anything to earn it. We can't do anything to lose it. We were saved by the, the loving power of God and we remain saved by that same power. And with that in mind, in Romans 8, 28, this is when Paul just kind of overflows. He says, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things, what, to come, nor powers, height, depth, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing. He covers every possible scenario, and then he just says, and anything else as well, just in case I missed one. So he is the one who's able to keep us from stumbling down this dark road to apostasy. So we don't have to go to bed at night afraid. We don't have to worry, am I going to be saved tomorrow? Will I do something tomorrow that will negate my salvation? No. Impossible. Impossible. And yet, it requires still that humility that we understand that, you know what? I want to live my life for Christ the best I can because he's done so much for me. Right? I don't want to go out and willingly stumble. Though That's behind me now. I want to, I want to stand for Christ. I want to do what's right in his eyes. But it's a good thing to know when I mess up that, you know, I don't have to fear God's boot on my behind kicking me out of heaven. Not going to happen. Second thing he's able to do is not just keep us from stumbling around in this dark world we live in, but he's also able, he says, to make us stand. He's able to make us stand. Um, this, this phrase here, to make you stand, Histomy in the, the original Greek, and it, it, it means more precisely to set or to present or to, you could say, to confirm, to establish. He says, to present you or to make you stand, what? Blameless. Blameless. See, at present, what are we doing? We're standing before a holy God in what? In his grace, by his grace. Because we don't have holiness in and of ourselves. It's only the, the holiness that Christ gave us, the righteousness that Christ clothed us, 
clothed us with, um, covered us with his righteousness. So we can stand before a holy God in grace. But what's incredible, the Bible says that in the future, we're also going to be able to stand not just in grace, but in glory. We will be standing before a holy God. Um, think about it. <laughs> For a fallen man to stand in the presence of God's glory, that should produce sheer terror in our hearts. It did in the Bible. Isaiah pronounced a curse on himself when he stood before the Lord. Ezekiel fell over like a dead person. Peter, James, and John experienced overwhelming fear at the Mount of Transfiguration before the holiness of God. The apostle John fainted as one who was dead when he saw the vision of the risen and glorious Christ in Revelation 1. See, when you come face to face with God's glorious presence, each one of these men felt instantly the full weight of their sinfulness. Nobody's going to be standing before God like, I belong here, look at me. <laughs> no, no, that's not going to be your attitude. Each one of these people fell to the ground overwhelmed by their own sense of unworthiness. And it tells us how we could ever even stand in God's glorious presence. What's the requirement? He says their blamelessness is the requirement basically faultless, utter perfection. It's a word that describes this future sinless state that one day we will endure in the presence of the Lord forevermore. Blameless means just that, no spots, no stains at all. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm excited about that day. No looking over the shoulder, you're going to be perfect in his presence. What an incredible gift that God has given to us through Christ. What a wonderful God we have. He reminds us that he can keep us from stumbling. That's in this life. And then he reminds us that, you know what? Don't be worried about when you're in heaven because I am able to make you stand before me completely blameless. That's when we get to heaven. So one's right now, one's in the future. And although believers, as those of us who've trusted Christ, we have put upon us, imputed to us, Christ's righteousness, right? And that's what makes us, you could say, positionally blameless before God now. When God looks at you here on this earth, he does not see Steve Converse. He does not see, see Kainoa or Ken or... Or Mike, he sees who? He sees Christ. He sees the righteousness of his son. That's how he's able to look upon us. Because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that's our position before God. Even though we're still in our fleshly, sinful, messing up bodies, right? I mean, we're not perfect. And so we're awaiting that, that resurrection when we will receive our new glorified bodies. And the Bible says in heaven we will experience not only the absence of sin. Think about this. We won't only, you know, everybody thinks of heaven, oh, that's a place where there's no sin. That's true. We're going to experience that. But it's also a presence. You're going to be in the presence of perfect holiness. Complete, perfect holiness. All of our faculties will be ripped away from this evil fleshly state we're in now and will be fully devoted to the righteous worship of God forever and ever and ever for all eternity. But even by way of position, by way of position, I'm perfect in God's sight, even though I'm not perfect in practice. Praise the Lord. No matter what problems I'm having, I mean, we're, this should produce great joy in our lives. Because it's, it's, it's based on what he has done for me. It's not based on my performance. It doesn't matter if I mess up. I don't want to mess up. But we're going to. That's, that's the truth. So we need to understand that God has 
the ability to keep us from stumbling, and we need to rely upon his ability. And then secondly, we see here, because of God's ability to keep us from stumbling and be able to stand before him completely blameless, we should have a response. What's the response to this glorious truth? We should be able to respond to his ability to save us, to him who is able, by what? By praising him. By praising him. And this is what he says in verse 25. Look at it. He says, to the only God. There's only one God. I mean, some people say, you know, well, what do you think of this? You know, what do you think of, you know, it's kind of like in, in, in the Bible where it talks about they were all worried about eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. Remember that text? And, and really, in the end, who cares? I mean, you don't want to do something that's overtly offensive to somebody, so you have to be careful of that. But so they sacrificed a, a cow to some stupid idol. It's not a real god. It doesn't exist. It's a figment of their imagination. There's only one god. One god. The only god. Our savior. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I think one of the, the key ways to know whether you're really believing in this power of God to keep you and to, to, to help you from stumbling and to keep you standing blamelessly before God, the only way to really know whether you believe in God's power is to keep you and, and to work in your lives, all this stuff. It, it really the, the, the telltale sign is how much praise, how much are you praising him for this? Is this an afterthought? How much do you really praise God for his gift of salvation? If you really believe that God can do it, then really the constant expression of your life will be to praise him for his power because you know how bad you are. And if he's able to override that, that's pretty incredible. And, and his greatness and what he's able to do. It will just flow out of your life. And he points out here, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority. Not only forever, look at what it says. He says before all time, and now, and forever. I mean, I want him to have all the honor, but I've got to rely on his ability and the proof of that is how I respond to him and praise him for all that I know he can do in and through me. And see, this is a way that you can live victoriously in times of apostasy. When everybody else is falling away, when the world is upside down, you know, this is why it's so important to have hearts of prayer. Because we believe in God's power. It was interesting. I mean, uh, Dave... I believe he went home today from what I talked to him. He was supposed to be getting checked out, but he was feeling pretty confident the other day. And he told me, he goes, God humbled me. His heart went into AFib. And he told me on the phone, he goes, I really thought that was it. I, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm glad you were at the hospital and not at home. <laughs> and they told him, yeah, this is normal. And I guess him and his wife didn't read that part of the notes, <laughs> post-op notes. So they were concerned, which anybody would be concerned, right? And so they said, no, this is pretty much normal. So it it passed, and they got it under control. But he wanted so much to, I'm going to be out of here by Tuesday. <laughs> I'm going to get out of here. He was trusting in God for that. But we continued to pray. We continued to pray for him. And, 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 and God answered those prayers. I mean, it's not even a week, and the guy had open-heart surgery, and he's home. That's amazing to me. That's why the ministry of the Holy Spirit's important. Why God must be number one in our hearts and our lives. We, we just want to serve him with everything we have. I mean, we have to be expecting, we have to be anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. And I pray that, as we've talked about, that we, you have a concern for others. You have a concern for their salvation. 
I mean, that's what the motivation is all about, right? To, to be evangelistic, to go out and to share the good news of the gospel with those who have yet to believe. And it's all for his glory. It's all for his majesty, his dominion, his authority. But it's, it's neat to know that it's before all time, now and forever. Um, it really clearly shows us how able God is. I want to close with a, a quote by Charles Spurgeon. And he says this. He, he says, when I heard it said that the Lord would keep his people right to the end, that Jesus had said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. Spurgeon says, I must confess that the doctrine of final preservation of the saints was a bait that my soul could not resist. I thought it was a sort of life insurance, an insurance of my character, an insurance of my soul, an insurance of my eternal destiny. I knew I could not keep myself, but if Christ promised to keep me, then I should be safe forever. And I longed and I prayed to find Christ because I knew that if I found him, he would not give me a temporary or a trumpery salvation such as some preach, but eternal life which could never be lost, the living, the incorruptible seed which liveth and abideth forever. For no one and nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Lord, thank you for these wonderful words from Jude in the closing his epistle. And Lord, we, we thank you so much for providing for us a secure salvation, a salvation that we can be assured of that's not based on our performance. It's not based on our works. It's not based on our desires. It's based upon your sovereign will to save us, to choose us even before the foundation of the world, to set your love upon us. We don't know why you did that, but we thank you for it. We thank you that you transformed us. You changed us. You gave us desires that are foreign to our sinful selves, desires that call us to your word, that call us to prayer, to call us to fellowship. These are desires that are foreign to our fleshly bodies. They can only come from one place. They have to be from you. And you planted the very Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, within us. And you are able to keep us. You are able to keep us from stumbling. You are able to keep us standing before you for all eternity in complete holiness and perfection. And Father, we thank you for the willingness of your Son to come here and to obey your will this week. As Rudy said, I can imagine what was going through Christ's mind as a human being, which he was, and yet still God, knowing that all these people that sang his praises would, in a matter of hours, be calling for his execution. And yet he still died. He still went through with it. Through all the scourging and the mocking and the spitting and the beating. And even to see his own disciples for a period of time turn their, their backs on him. But the most horrendous thing the most unthinkable thing that Christ went through when he hung there on that cross is when you, his father, had to turn away because he bore our sin and our shame. And so, Father, we pray that as we approach Friday, as we approach Sunday, Lord, that you would ring anew in our hearts, in our minds, Put a, a true meaning behind this week. 
Lord, that we could truly worship you, we could truly praise you for the glorious work that you've done in each one of our hearts to draw us to yourself because there's no way we would ever come if it was left up to us. And Lord, we thank you that it's your work and not our own. There's nothing we can do to break that reconciliation that you have established through your son and through his work with your children. And Father, we, we praise you for that. We pray that you would just bless our fellowship this night. And Lord, if any here would yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that they would understand their need of a Savior, that they would cry out to the living God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sins. I desire to live for you and your Son alone. That's a prayer with its pray from a sincere heart. God will answer. He will transform you. He will save you. He will forgive you. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.